Good morning. Happy Good Friday. I'd like to say thank you uh, for the children who are joining us this morning. You're going to have to help your parents following along and turning in their pages of Scripture. Hopefully, you brought your own Bibles, and you can track with us this morning as we look at Isaiah 53. We call it Good Friday. Some of us are wearing black. Do you see the contradiction? You don't have to wear black. You don't have to think of it as a Good Friday, but I want to challenge you this morning. I want to ask you, Good Friday... Why? Why is today good? Is Good Friday really good? Good for whom? For everybody? Good for God? Good for us? Is it selfish of us to call Good Friday good? I didn't realize until I started looking into this, there's actually a controversy here. The Germans call it Karfreitag, which means sorrowful Friday. That works, no controversy there. Uh, in Greek liturgy, it's called Holy Friday or Great Friday. That works, there's no controversy there. Some people believe that in the English language, it used to be called God's Friday, and somehow like an Iceland-Greenland thing became Good Friday, maybe, I don't know. In Denmark, they call it Long Friday. I get that, Long Friday. I hope that this isn't a long message. What you call good says something about you. Let's suppose December 26, 2004, I decided to commemorate and every year celebrate what happened on that day, and I called it a good day. Do you remember what happened on that day? A tsunami rolled into Indonesia, killing hundreds of thousands of people. You remember that day? If I called that a good day, what would that say about me? You would have deep questions. You'd be afraid. In what way is that good? How can you call that a good day? You'd be right to have problems with that. And what if I challenged you and I said, how about a day where a man who was born in absolute sinless perfection, he was pure and perfect all the way through his life, and in absolute innocence, he was betrayed, he was denied, he was abandoned, by all the people who loved him the closest and the most. He was taken to Pilate and to Herod. He was mocked. He was beaten. This perfect Lamb of God died for crimes and sins, heinous, unspeakable things that I couldn't even say it wouldn't be appropriate. It wouldn't be family-friendly in civil converse, conversation. For me to talk about this Christ, this innocent Lamb, without even defending himself, being tortured and beaten and killed in the most barbaric and savage of ways, in a public humiliation. How can we call that a good day? And we commemorate this as a good day. Here's a list of words that I pulled out of Isaiah 53. Affliction, sorrow, grief, chastisement, wounds, Suffering, stricken, rejected, despised, oppressed, slaughter, judgment, cut off, violence, death, deceit, crush, grief. It's a good day. God says it is. How is it a good day? 
we need to pray. Let's bow our heads. Oh, Father, be with us as we turn to Isaiah 53, as we open this beautiful picture of justice and love, unequivocal, incomparable, hard to accept. And Lord, draw us into your heart that we may appreciate afresh your son uh, and the beauty of him entering humanity, humble, like a lamb led to the slaughter. Lord, open our eyes to what this meant for you. Uh, and Father, we ask that if there are people here who don't know you, that this would open their eyes, that they'd be moved by this lamb, this gift, this beautiful sacrifice that you gave us uh, on our behalf. And Lord, for those who do know you, I pray that you would draw us closer to understanding what moves a heart of a father to send his beloved son, his one and only son, whom he loves, to be beaten and tried and treated in such a savage way. Be with us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. While you're turning to Isaiah 53, where we'll be sending our time this morning, Isaiah is a book that actually began Jesus' first public ministry. He stood in the temple, they passed him the scroll of Isaiah, and he started reading from Isaiah. Luke 4.18 details that. He's reading from Isaiah 61.1, and Jesus went on. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of God's favor. Jesus rolled up the scroll and put it away with all eyes fixed on him. And he said two incredible things. He said, today this has been fulfilled in your presence. For thousands of years, people had been anticipating this Messiah to come. They'd been wondering, when is this Christ, this promised one coming? And now, in their midst, here is Jesus, the Christ, the guy Isaiah was describing. Jesus is saying two things. Look no further, I'm the guy. Wait no longer, it's happening now. Well, guess how his sermon finished? Initially, they were filled with wonder at the gracious words. But by the time his sermon was finished... They wanted to take him to a hill and throw him off. That's his first public apparition. Speaking of himself from Isaiah, that would have been a very short pulpit ministry, wouldn't it have been? Jesus often referenced Isaiah. The, the Ethiopian eunuch was stuck on exactly this passage we'll be looking at this morning uh, in Acts chapter 8 and 32. He was stuck. Who is this Lamb of God that is being described in Isaiah 53? Peter taught from this same passage. He referenced it, almost repeating it. 1 Peter 2, to 25. And so, this morning, it's kind of a riddle. It's like a clue board, all right? Think of this like a, a big riddle that's been given to these Jewish people. And Isaiah goes on to unpack this Christ, this wonderful, this counselor, mighty God, prince of peace, and everlasting father. He was supposed to be virgin born. So, Picture this clue board behind me, all right? This giant, like, bulletin board uh, with thumbtacks in it and maybe a world map and some newspaper clippings, maybe a big circle and some circles around it like they do in these FBI investigations, right? That's what we're doing. That's what we're doing for Isaiah. And there's some uh, lines, big dark lines going across uh, the board as we're looking at our clue board and we're trying to figure out not who done it, not who is the murderer or the criminal. In this case, we're trying to find out 
who was murdered? Who is this person that Isaiah is describing? And so we're going to be reading Isaiah 53 together and trying to figure out who is Isaiah describing? Who is this Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? And what's amazing about Isaiah, it's not written in apocalyptic kind of language. It's not like Revelation where there are seals and bowls. Uh, you know, it's, it's not hidden from us. It's really pretty straightforward as a read, as her sister Serena has just read for us. I think the biggest challenge of Isaiah 53 is it's very hard to accept. And so we'll begin at verse 1. Isaiah 53, verse 1. And of course, there's three preceding verses that we'll get to in our reading. But in verse 1, Isaiah says, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? There seems almost a dismay. Isaiah is saying, who is listening? Who's accepting this? Who is paying attention to this message that I'm sharing? There seems almost uh, a despair in what he's saying. Who has accepted this message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? I wonder if Isaiah is actually wrestling with some of the things he's writing. Right, he should be wrestling with some of the things he's writing. I wonder if as he's writing, he's getting stuck on some things and saying, I can't believe that this is how God is asking me to describe himself. Some of these things are very difficult to accept. I wonder if Isaiah is wrestling even as he's writing this. He says, Who's this, who has accepted what he has believed? Who has believed what, uh, what we have said? Let me read this properly. Who has believed what we, he has heard from us? There's a plural. There's multiple voices here. So it's not just Isaiah's message. There's all the prophets of the Old Testament. There's the sacrifices and the signs and God's presence with them. There is an us. There's a plurality of voices that is speaking. And the arm of the Lord is being revealed. The arm, the power, the strength of God. Ready for the strength of God being revealed in Isaiah 53? It's going to look very different than what we would have anticipated. What a giant message. What an epic message to fall on deaf ears. That God would enter humanity and largely be either unrecognized or worse, rejected. That he would be characterized, characterized by grief and sorrow. He'd be acquainted with suffering. How the people would respond to him. Of course, they would herald him. Of course, finally the Messiah has come. That's not at all what we're going to read. How God took pleasure in his suffering. God took pleasure in the suffering of this person. That this serpent, that this serpent, this, this servant lays down his own life. What a picture of God that's being displayed for us. And so we'll read in at verse 2. Isaiah 53, 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look to him, and no beauty that we should desire him. <laughs> Speaking of dry ground, one second. I find it amazing that Jesus grew up. On the clue board, this is the introduction that we have. Jesus grew up. I gave my son a piggyback ride down the stairs this morning. Jesus had a piggyback ride. That's part of growing up. He skinned his knee. He learned to speak. He learned anything. He learned to sing. He learned to write or read. He learned. We read from Scripture that Jesus grew in favor and in statue uh, and, and wisdom. He learned 
Uh, it's amazing. Unlike Melchizedek, the king who wandered in out of the desert, Jesus decided to grow up with us to fully embrace what it was like to be a human. Uh, that he would be planted in a root out of dry ground. He didn't take nutrients from the surrounding soil and require anything from around him. He was planted in this picture. He was planted in a desert. I think it's amazing that the first metaphor we have of this suffering servant is a plant. A plant. This is the arm of the Lord being revealed as a plant out of dry ground. I mean, here he is born in Nazareth. When Philip came to Nathaniel and said, hey, Nathaniel, you need to come and meet this Jesus from Nazareth. Do you remember what, what Nathaniel answered? He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's just known for just being a place that nothing good comes out of this Nazareth place. Anyway, this is the introduction we have of Jesus. He had no beauty. He had no form. He had no majesty. On the clue board, if you were thinking God all this time, you probably would remove him from the list of suspects. Because God is majestic and God is beautiful just not in the physical way, in the way he appeared to us. He didn't come in a way that would have used his physical appearance to, get, to gain any advantage. I used to think Jesus was maybe ugly. It's not what it says. It just says he had no beauty that we would admire him or want to get the door for him or double take him. Uh, there, there was nothing in his physical countenance that would have drawn us to him. Philippians 2 on the board says something a little bit uh, similar is going to agree with this passage. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. There it is again. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even the death on the cross. This is something different about the true form of Jesus, doesn't it? In the form of God. Isaiah 53 says, has no form, no human form or appearance or beauty that we would be attracted to him. So here is, here is God coming down and not grasping at the fact of him being God, not demanding worship from people, not demanding a special title or a special response. Here is God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, saying, let the children come to me. Such a beautiful picture. It's not what people had envisioned for the arm of the Lord being revealed. And a servant. God, a servant? It's hard to imagine who has believed a report. Isaiah is challenging us, all of us. Here is God being revealed as a servant, not just a servant, a servant who suffered, not just suffered, to death, and not just death, the death on the cross. He came as a servant. He washed feet. He carried children. He served. But he wasn't a servant of people. He wasn't a servant of man. He was a servant of God. He was obedient to death, even death of the cross. This is what God asked him to do as a servant. And so he was a perfect servant. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. How's your clue board going? 
Does it sound like God that we're describing? Who has believed our report? When I think of Jesus as a man of sorrows, I think of his death on the cross. We haven't even got to the cross yet. We're talking about his life. Think about his life lived as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. I appreciate that humanity. John 1.11 says that Jesus came to his own, Jew to Jew, and his own did not receive him. They rejected him through his life. His siblings didn't like him. They, want, they tried to kill him. They tried to send him into a situation that would have gotten him killed. We know that Joseph, his father, didn't live until Jesus grew up. It's widely accepted that Joseph, his father, died. That's sorrowful. What a difficult life. I don't think anybody, almost anybody, got Jesus. I don't think almost anybody understood what he was saying. Follow with me. We were busy creating roles for Jesus to perform. Got free bread? I'm there. You want to perform a miracle? I'm coming. Messiah? Great, as long as you preserve my way of life. A deliverer? Wonderful. It's about time. We need somebody to set us free from these Romans. I'm sick of paying taxes. A good teacher? We need more of those. But don't touch my idols or tell me how to live righteously. Do you see how we were happy for a certain kind of Messiah, but not the Messiah that was sent by God? To many, he was a rabbi who answered their questions, but those, the, when he gave advice, they didn't want to take his advice. Here's this rich young ruler who comes, good, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? Or what must I do uh, to have eternal life? And Jesus told him, and he walked away downcast. And Jesus had compassion on him. Think about the very many religious rulers who tried to ensnare and trap Jesus using the scriptures that Jesus wrote. <laughs> this is what Jesus had written, and uh, I find that amazing. To Herod, Jesus was a magician. Perform an act for me. I hear that you've done many miracles. Let's see some of those miracles being done for us now. To Peter, Jesus was a, was a, a co-zealot. He grabbed his sword on the night that Jesus was going to be crucified, Peter, we've talked about this. You knew my plan. I told you specifically and directly. I spoke openly about this, but Peter thought he was doing the right thing. This is the time, and Jesus is going to stand by me. Ten lepers were healed. One came back. That's sad. That's, that shouldn't be. Ten people's lives were saved, and one was saved eternally. Oh, they went to Samaria in a, uh, to, to preach, and uh, they were not rejected. They were not received well in Samaria. They were rejected. And so guess what the disciples said? Master, shall we call down fire? <laughs> you're, you're, you're missing everything that I'm about. They really didn't understand it. And at the Last Supper, they're busy arguing about who's greater, who's more important, who's going to sit at his right hand. They're missing the whole thing. And if, you, if you're not convinced yet, consider, after Jesus died, how did the disciples uh, respond when he died? Were they jumping up and down because this is exactly what Jesus had predicted? They were bewildered. They were despondent. They felt undone. They felt like they lost. What a tremendous tragedy. Guys, this is my victory. This is what I've told you about directly, year after year. We've spent three years intensely. I've been teaching and discipling you. You've seen my miracles. You've heard my teaching. 
and that I will suffer many things. Three days and three nights would be in the belly of the whale, like the sign of Jonah. On and on, they, uh, Jesus would have told them. And yet now, after Jesus dies, they are despondent and they don't get it. They make fun of the guy on the road to Emmaus, like he's the new guy, like he's the weirdo. Like, don't you know? Have you not heard? It's Jesus who's talking to them. They were so out of the loop. Jesus was not understood. Nobody got him. I don't think people get him today. You look around the public pop culture understanding of who Jesus is. Healer? Good. That's on the clue board. He's a healer. Mighty? Sure. A good teacher? I'll take that. But nothing else. We like to put God in a box. We like to have Jesus only in certain rooms of our house, only in certain areas of our lives, but not everywhere, not Lord and Master. I find it even funny in the, in the movies that are made of Jesus. He's kind of Caucasian. He's good looking. <laughs> you know, no beauty, Isaiah 53. Uh, he's kind of athletic build-ish, right? He's got a beard, so we've got that right. But it is trimmed, you know, with the razor that Jesus kept on him. Uh, it just, some of that doesn't really make a lot of sense. Isaiah 53, 4 to 6, Jesus, our substitute. He's our substitute. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him, stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquity. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. There's a beautiful and very important doctrinal truth that's in this passage at least 10 times. I hope you didn't miss it. Fancy word? Substitutionary atonement. Listen for it. Verse 4. He, is, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He is stricken for the transgression of my people. His soul, verse 10, makes an offering for, well, guilt. Whose guilt? My guilt. It doesn't say my. It's my guilt. Verse 11. He shall bear their iniquities. Yet, Verse 12, he bore the sins of many. That's a beautiful picture of Jesus taking our place. Jesus substituting, doing for us what we couldn't have done for ourselves. Taking the full crushing wrath of God in beautiful and perfect justice for us on the cross. And so we've talked about Jesus as a man of sorrows. What about Jesus, the suffering servant? We're going to change gears from sorrow to sufferer. That he suffered. Look at these two verses from Isaiah. Isaiah 50, verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike. Put this on your clue board. And my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Isaiah 52, 14. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the, child, of the children of man. How barbaric. How savage. How horrific that his face was unrecognizable. They had beaten and sorely abused him to such a degree 
that his, he, his form was uh, beyond that of the children of man. And in spite of all of this, look at the metaphor that Isaiah is reaching for. He calls Jesus a lamb. So a plant out of dry ground, and now a lamb. There's nothing more domesticated. There's no animal less fierce than a lamb. <laughs> they don't exist in the wild, for example. There's no poison barbs or asps or sharp claws or talons or fangs. It's a lamb. It's really quite an innocent animal. Um, but I appreciate the fact that Jesus' silence in this passage is not his helplessness. Yes, a lamb, not helpless like a lamb. We were the helpless ones. We, like sheep, have gone astray. But Jesus was silent like a lamb led to slaughter, but not helpless. In fact, Jesus commanded his own execution. Look at how he carried control the entire time even correcting the people who were saying, aren't you going to give an answer to me? You would have no authority except to be given to you. Leveled the Roman army twice. Who are you looking for? I am. Leveled them. Let these people go. Let my disciples go. He's negotiating for his own. It's just amazing that all 300 prophecies about Jesus' death were fulfilled, even the ones that he wasn't in control of, like where he was buried. And we'll talk about that as well. Jesus was not a victim of circumstances. Jesus laid down his own life. Nobody took it from him. He came to offer his life a ransom for many. Joseph has a beautiful quote I need to share with you. Uh, Joseph Benson says, Yet he opened not his mouth. He neither murmured against God for giving him up to suffer for other men's sins, nor reviled men for punishing him without cause, nor used apologies or endeavors to save his own life, but willingly and quietly accepted the punishment of our iniquity, manifesting through the whole scene of his unparalleled sufferings the most exemplary patience and meekness and the most ready and cheerful compliance with his heavenly Father's will. A beautiful picture of our Lord. It's hard to accept that this is how God decided to enter humanity. Do you see the arm of the Lord now? Do you appreciate the, the power of God in its humility in entering in this way and showing himself in this way? I love this. It says, they made his grave with the rich man in his death. Do you know the story here? Joseph of Arimathea it, owned the tomb where Jesus was buried. But Joseph of Arimathea was part of the Sanhedrin. He was part of the council. And Jesus was condemned for blasphemy as part of that council. So let me get this straight. This council, the Sanhedrin, decided that Jesus was a blasphemer. They killed him. And then he was buried and put in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, who was part of the council. I wonder if Joseph kept his job. <laughs> and I guess if he was let go on Friday... Good Friday. Maybe he got his job back on Monday or Sunday morning. Wouldn't that be funny? Come in the office, put your briefcase on the table and all the side-eye going on. Like, I was right. I voted on the right side. I buried Jesus in my tomb and my tomb is back. Here he is buried among the rich exactly as Isaiah had prophesied. Then in verse 10, I think this is the hardest phrase in the whole chapter. It pleased the Lord to crush him or to smite him, or smitten by God. Consider this. 
God was pleased to strike his son. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? I understand Isaiah wrestling. I can feel Isaiah wrestling with this. It pleased God to, to crush him, verse 10. Wow. Why? How? How can God do this? Consider for a moment that all the sins of all humanity, of anyone who believes in Christ, from Adam and Eve to the last second of time, all of those sins, some too horrible to speak, and some of them just tiny little snarky attitude sins, people-pleasing sins, lazy sins, gossip sins, judgmentalism sins, the things we do every day sins. Those sins. Everything from that whole spectrum of all humanity for anyone who's ever believed in Christ all of them are cast on Christ for that moment in time. It pleased the Lord to crush him. Not for Christ, but for the embodiment of these sins, not his own, that he is atoning for. They must be paid for to vindicate God's justice. God is a righteous judge. And so, this is what that means. God took pleasure in causing his son's suffering only insofar as it accomplished the work of reconciling the world to himself. Oh, that's a beautiful picture of love and justice married together in the cross. Do you see the arm of the Lord? It's so beautiful. Jesus offered himself willingly. Matthew 20, verse 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's the picture we have of a willing servant this was not some child abuse. This is God loving us, being just about every single sin. John 10, 17. For this reason, the Father loves me because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Hey, in reference to past sins, have a look at these sins that were formerly passed over. What did God do with all those Old Testament sins? Those pre-Christ sins? Isaiah the prophet's sins? Who paid for those sins? The accuser is ready to ask. He's ready at God's door. Who's paying for those sins? Those sins that Isaiah did. Those sins that you and I have done. Here's what Romans 3.25 says. In reference to past sins whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. That doesn't sound just. I can hear the devil reeling up, that accuser of the brethren. You passed over former sins? Verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that, to a very important terms here, don't, don't lose me, so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What does this mean? Look, for, for Jesus, for God to be just would be simple. Here's just. The soul who sins shall die. That was very simple. It was our problem. God did not need to intervene. God didn't need to get involved with our problem. The soul that sins shall die. That's just. But God is also a justifier. To be a justifier is simple too. You want to be a justifier? I freely grant pardon. I remove your guilt. That's a justifier. You are now justified. 
But for God to be both just and justifier holds these two in absolute tension. Do you see how difficult it is to declare not guilty while also paying for sin and being just with how sin is dealt with? But only God could find a way to be both just and justifier through the man Christ Jesus. In this servant, we see the indisputable satisfaction of justice of sins paid for. The cross does paint the ugly picture of sin for anyone who cares to look and live. But in the cross, we also see the beauty of love that had to suffer to vindicate God's glory by not leaving sins unpunished while also saving to the uttermost those who believe in his son. Wow. That God was able to hold that in perfect tension, just and justifier. Finally, Jesus, the satisfied The last couple of verses. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, this is verse 10, the second half of verse 10. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. First, what's going on here? (laughs) There's an offspring that's been introduced. Who are the offspring? Jesus didn't have any offspring. So who are we talking about? His offspring in verse 10. And also, it says Jesus would be cut off. How could he see his offspring? Jesus doesn't have any offspring. He's been cut off from the land of the living. So what's happening here? These are the offspring of God, the children of God. Isaiah is speaking about the children of God, you and me believers who trust God and have counted ourselves. These are our transgressions that Jesus Christ has died for. We are the offspring of God. I find it amazing that we're talking about redemption here in Isaiah. We're talking about resurrection. Here's the resurrection. First in verse 8, he's been cut off out of the land of the living. And now in verse uh, 10, he shall prolong his days. How is that possible? How can one be cut off from the land of the living and also prolong his days? If you're dead, you can't have prolonged days. Can can we just agree on that fact? Uh, And yet this is what it's telling us. I find it amazing that I had to even split the verse, verse 10, that Jesus would be crushed by God. And the second half of verse 10 comes blessing in the same verse. Blessing, prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. God was pleased to strike him, and now God is pleased to bless him. Do you understand that tension? How is this possible? Well, these sins are not Jesus' sins. These aren't things Jesus did. For the time when those sins were laid upon him, God crushed him. It pleased the Lord to grieve him and lay him to suffering. But now we read Isaiah 52, verse 13, just previous to this passage. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. There's an interesting study in Isaiah. Those who are exalted are humbled. If you exalt yourself, the Lord will humble you. The only one who's described in Isaiah who is high and exalted is God. Have a look. It's a pretty fascinating study, and here it is in 52 and 13. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Jesus was obviously no criminal. 
I love that, I love the word satisfaction. Jesus was satisfied. He had no regret. He was pleased. It was accomplished. Rightly, Jesus said, it is finished. Is today a good day? Is Friday a good Friday? Is it something to celebrate? Absolutely. God would celebrate it. God is satisfied with it. God is satisfied in his son, and Christ is satisfied with the cross. Those hell-bound sinners who trust Christ, who have laid their sins on him and trusted him with their faith, those sinners can be saved. That accounting term, the accounting term that says many will be accounted righteous. That's you and me who trust him. You and me who follow him. I love verse 12. It talks about a portion. There's a portion here. There's spoils, like spoils of war. That these spoils are divided. Um, that these spoils are shared with even unworthy children. We are the many that share in these spoils. We are the many, the children of God that are being introduced here. If children, Romans 8, 17 tells us, if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. How generous is God when Christ pays this whole sacrifice at all awesome, absolute cost in full obedience to, to his Father that we get shares, we get some of the spoils, we're co-heirs with Christ and that we may also be glorified together, Romans eight seventeen tells us. I find it interesting how organically we move in verse 12 between Christ dividing the shares these spoils, and God dividing the spoils. Who owns the spoils? Have a look. Have a look. This is verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, God says, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Who's dividing the spoils? This is God and Jesus being spoken of interchangeably. I find that amazing. For one who has poured his soul out till death means nothing was left, that God poured himself out absolutely. And he lives to make intercession for the transgressors. Hebrews 7.25, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for us. Jesus' redemptive work was finished on Calvary. It is finished, he said. Finished. But Jesus still lives for us to intercede. If in his death he accomplished so much, how much more in his life that he lives for us and is for us and intercedes for us uh, on his Father's right hand. And so, at the beginning of this message, I asked you, is this a good day? Is, Is it a good Friday? Is it really good? Because what you call good says a lot about you. The most valuable thing in the universe was spent to redeem us. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all the lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works, Titus 2.14. The Lord of glory came down in unspeakable love to endure unimaginable agony and humiliation. He was crushed by the wrath of God under the weight of sin so that we wouldn't have to. Isaiah's question is still ringing in the air for us today. Who has believed our report And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? We need to answer that. Have we believed this report of God's suffering servant? Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this weighty passage that we have been able to look at. Thank you for showing us your suffering servant, 
obedient to death, even to death on the cross. Thank you for this beautiful picture of justice and love, that you would be just and justifier of those who believe in you. Lord, I pray if there's people in this audience right now who don't know you, I pray they'd come to know you, they'd come to see this Christ as majestic, as beautiful. I pray, Lord, that we would all admire his humility and his grace. We need this in Christ. Lord, if there, for those who believe, for those who are saved, for those for whom the Lord has interceded, I pray, Lord, that you would draw us closer to you and draw us um, to uh, knowing you more. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.